Cut, and this is the K Cut, a movie podcast for movie fans. James here, content creator. I produce and release music under the alias Boutique Paul. I'm one half of the Prefer Not to Say podcast, and my expertise on the show lies within no budget film in 70s cinema. I'm Rachel. I love the golden age of Hollywood, silent films, lost films, and international cinema, and I write for Films Fatal. I'm Andreas. I am the creator of Films Fatal and also one of its writers. I love international cinema, art house cinema, a little bit of everything in between. And, yep, welcome to another edition of the K-Cut. Not just the K-Cut, but it is our monthly tradition of what we call the Cinematic Smorgasbord. So if you have never listened to us before or any of these particular episodes, welcome, welcome. These are a lot of fun. Like we have detailed at the start of this episode, we all have our own separate tastes in film, but we also have a lot of overlap as well. So what we like to do once a month is give the other co-hosts something to watch that they've never seen before. So that's what we do individually. And furthermore, we have a film that none of us have seen before that we also have to watch as well. And this month's uh, version of this assignment is 1960s Private Property, a previously lost film which has been reassembled and much more cherished now than it once was back when it was first released, particularly by the Kennedys. So we'll get into that in the second half, but in the first half, we'll get into our, our individual assignments. So who wants to report their findings first? I'll go first. Okay. Who assigned you what and how did it go? Well, Andreas, you clearly have no short-term memory because you assigned me L'Argent. Ah, yes. And that is a Robert Bresson film, and it is based on a Tolstoy short story about how one dishonest financial decision has ripple effects through an entire section of society. Well, it was a good film. It's very spare in its style, I would say minimalist, and most good movies are like this in that there is not a single wasted frame, but this one really takes it to its epitome. And so it tells this story with all the fat trimmed, and it's just a really great experience because it, again, shows this ripple effect of this one decision and just pulls it off in this very seamless manner. Yeah, Bresson is excellent at really to-the-point stuff. And it's not even just the duration of his films, which are, like, typically an hour and a half or less. Less than an hour and a half. Exactly. Um, but it's also just what you see on screen, and everything is, like, down to its barest fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Every object, every frame has a purpose. Exactly. He wasn't always like that, and even his earlier stuff is actually quite good. But um, this signature style, which everybody is obsessed with, you know, in Pickpocket or Ohazar Balthazar, sorry for butchering that, um, they all follow this sort of code that he abides by. And uh, I believe this was his last film he ever did. And some people actually consider it his magnum opus, which that's a tough call to make. But there's just something about Largent where he delivers one of my favorite allegorical pictures that I think I've ever seen where it's not so much about characters and everything. It's about, like you said, one decision and the ripple effects of how it affects so many people in so many different walks of life, especially when it comes to everyone's least favorite subject on earth, money. And the film's political. A lot of people call it Marxist and that element is definitely there, but I would argue there's a lot of room for interpretation too. It's really more about sort of wrongdoing in general. Yeah, and that's the thing. I very much agree with that because I don't think Bresson films have ever really said, this is how you should feel about stuff. Um, they're more about presenting horrific images or circumstances and letting you decide 
what your threshold is in terms of viewing stuff or how far you can go with a picture or even just how you feel about everything in general and what's really what you can really make out of this gray area. And even when it does get violent, it's not egregious, it's not decadent, it's there for the purpose of the story. Maybe stay away from the very first few minutes of Lancelot Dulaw if you don't want to see, uh, also by Bresson, if you don't want to see um, gory. But uh, no, with this film, with Laura Jean, I don't remember who said it. It might have been Hitchcock, it might have been Fellini, I don't know. Some famous director, and it's escaping me right now, said... The best films are the ones you can watch with the sound off because, you know, it, you know, to summarize, it's basically they're basically saying uh, the perfectly assembled images transcend language. And that's what a barricade. So in a film like this, absolutely, you see so much with your eyes. And I don't even think there's a lot of dialogue from what I remember when I watched this. It, if everything is exactly as you see it and it's universal. Yeah, it's very much speaking in the language of film. Absolutely, and that's that's one of the reasons why I think Brayson's one of the greats. Mm-hmm. Not in my top ten, but that's because there's just too many great filmmakers. But I would argue my top twenty for sure. Like his stuff is, if you're thinking about film as the actual medium and the art and and in which it's assembled and the language of film, he has to be considered one of the greats. Like he just knows virtually how to refine and retool this medium exactly as he needs to see fit. And it's not just with this film, it's with Mouchette, it's with uh, A Man Escaped, it's with so many different films, including the ones I brought up earlier. Like, I've seen most of his films, and I would consider the vast majority of them must-sees for all cinephiles, including Lerjean. So I'm very happy that uh, you were able to watch it, and I'm happy it sounds like you liked it. It was a really great pick, and I would love to see more of his stuff in the future. The only one I've ever seen besides that is A Man Escaped. Which is really good. Uh, I recommend so many of his films, obviously, but with warning, when it comes to Mouchette and Ohuzar Balthazar, which are two of the most depressing, devastating films I think I've ever seen. So just take that with a, with a hint of caution. All right. <laughs> I guess it's uh, you went first, and it was the film that I signed you. I could go next. So I assigned you that, and I've got to preface the one that James, you assigned me, because I've got to come a little bit clean here. So Films Fatale is not the first site that I have ever like worked on. It's my first site that I myself have run, but I used to write for a number of publications before. One of them was Toronto Ezine Live in Limbo. And around the time of 2014, when the film you assigned was released... I was like the main writer for all things movie and I did a lot of album writing as well. And I was compiling my best of lists and I was asked by uh, still a good friend. It's not like a issue or anything, but a good friend over there uh, to include some of the picks that some of the other staff members had. I said, okay. And uh, Blue Ruin, which is the film that you assigned was one of those picks that somebody else had suggested. And I said, oh, okay. So I watched a few clips of it just to get a vibe about it so I could write about it for the other person who selected the film, but I had not actually like seen it, seen it. Now, when it came to my best albums list, that was accredited to the entire staff, even though I like wrote everything, the selections were done by multiple people. This was accredited only to me, 
So now it looks like I've seen it, but I actually hadn't. So I just wanted to clarify that the film is Blue Ruin, and that's the film that you assigned to me. Uh, now that that spiel is done, I could finally say I have seen it. But why did you pick this specific film for me? I picked it because, well, one, contrary to the difficulty Rachel has, it is very easy for me to find films for you because for some reason, I just happen to know all the films in every decade that you just hadn't gotten to yet. Well, this one was very close. Very, like, I would have gotten like, around to barely. it. Like, just barely. Yeah, I would have gotten around to it if I had the wherewithal. And I've been wanting to see it for a very long time. Because I think it definitely... It's not too far left of the traditional revenge film, but it definitely brings a lot of, like, more art house elements that you like into the revenge genre. Mm -hmm. So that was kind of like, if he hasn't seen this, I think he'd actually like it because the atmosphere is just very, I don't know what to call it. It it kind of, like, the main character, it's like you're kind of engulfed in his despair the entire time. And just kind of seeing him watch as he's kind of like moving, just kind of like he's bouncing around from place to place. Like, you know, he's, uh, you know, breaking into people's homes, stealing clothes, all just so he can like find the person who was responsible for uh, his parents' murder. Parents, right. Yeah. And just the way the story unfolds, I think it was very refreshing because it doesn't go, it doesn't take the generic direction that revenge films take, especially when you actually learn what really happened and then how it ends. It would be something that, you know, I was like, oh, this might be something refreshing for Andres to watch. And it's, again, something I've been wanting to watch for so long. Um, Obviously, Jeremy Solnier is not foreign to anybody who's uh, familiar with, um, you know, uh, with it with the indie film circuit um green room was heavily beloved especially around the the uh the unfortunate circumstances of anton yelchik because i think it was released either slightly before slightly after his passing um but this one was like on my radar since it first came out and i wanted to get around to it and i just didn't until now and now that i have i have to say it's this is most likely quite easily my favorite james pick i've, I've been given um wow awesome I absolutely adore the film. It reminds me a lot of something like the Korean film Burning, where a lot of what you're seeing is shown, not told. And I feel like there's going to be so much stuff worthy of seeing on on the rewatch when I get around to it. And it's so short as well. It's like an hour and a half. It's it very easy to, to toss on to Amazon Prime, which is where I watched it. Um, to toss it on the streaming service again or potentially own one day. Like, like you said, it's very indie. You could tell it was like low budgeted and everything, but it reads like, like you said, like an art house film and uh, so much minimalism. I don't think the first piece of dialogue, even with some of the uh, intense visceral opening stuff that happens, the first line of dialogue is like, maybe 15 minutes in if i'm not mistaken yeah it's it, it takes a while for it to pick up at least dialogue wise uh but like yeah i think i i think it was just like it has a very almost terrence malick atmosphere but oh, this yeah. film also is one of those rare films where it it's able to bring that kind of coen brothers flavor of noir but without the idiosyncrasies yeah it reminded me so much of no country for old men um but the difference is like and I say this with love because No Country for Old Men is one of my favorite films of the two thousands. Um, 
No Country for Old Men feels like Masters at Work. Blue Ruin, you truly feel like you're like in the thick of the South. And like, um, it doesn't seem like the filming cinematic version of this. It feels like you're there, even though it's well shot, like very well shot, very cinematic in ways. Um, it just feels so authentically Southern. Like you're there. Um, sometimes you forget you're like watching a film. Like it's like, you feel like you're, you're witnessing this torn apart family trying to come up with its catharsis years after its destruction. And now that it's happening, it's misunderstood or it's a calamity. And now suddenly everybody's in danger. It also has a very Tarantino-esque ending. Kind of. At the same time, it doesn't. And again, I say this with love because Tarantino is also like maybe in my top 20 filmmakers ever. Tarantino is very showy. This is the playfulness of like the Tarantino ending without being like... Look at a master at work. Like this feels like you're like actually in a moment and you don't know how it's going to go. With Tarantino, it's because he's like the the master of puppets and he's like stringing you along and he's like stringing his characters along. With Blue Ruin, what Sonier does, it's more like this doesn't feel like Hollywood. This doesn't feel like it's going by the numbers. I don't know what's going to happen. And I really like that. Yeah, I got curious after seeing Green Room. I was like, oh, what's this film like? And I watched it. I was like, yep. So good. It's actually better. I would say it's better than Green Room. I would actually go ahead and say that it's better than Green Room. I can Lo- agree with that. Love this film. Love this film. Love this film. I, I do sincerely think it's like my favorite James pick that I've received so far. Um, and I, th- I think at this point, it might even be tough to, to beat it. Like it's. That's high praise coming from you. <laughs> it's it's damn good. Like, so good that one day when I update my best of the 2010s list, this might be somewhere maybe on the lower end, maybe even slightly higher. Don't know. Really liked it. Uh, but enough about that. James, what were you assigned by? I'm guessing it would have to be Rachel? No, it was you again. You doubled up this month. Oh, I'm so selfish. <laughs> All right. So I was assigned the... 1971 film by Hal Ashby, Harold and Maud. I'm so excited. I love that film. What did you think? This film was very interesting. And for those who haven't seen it, it's about uh, a young man named Harold who is he's very death obsessed. He also likes to fake suicides and attend other people's funerals that he doesn't even know or related to. And uh, among his many funeral visits, he comes across a very eccentric elderly lady named Maud who is living her best life, you know, doing whatever she wants, like stealing different cars every day that she doesn't own despite not having a license. Even there's even a scene where she steals a cop's motorcycle, which is absolutely priceless. And you know, they form this really interesting connection that evolves into a romance and it was just so fascinating something that is so out there but so wholesome at the same time exactly and yeah it was just so unique and also it's like despite being death obsessed Maud gives harold this kind of new appreciation for life and i'm not going to reveal what happens at the end because it's like what it escalates to is actually very it's it's extreme but subtle at the same time i'll just say that and 
Yeah. Also, the uh, who's with the Cat Stevens music? Yes, so good. That was it. Was it was so seventies, but it was so awesome. Just especially the the one particular song that kind of plays through, which is played on a multiple in a variety of different ways throughout. I can't remember mm. which song it was. I listened to the soundtrack probably at least once a week. Oh wow, that's pretty frequent. Wow. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I'm because this is only the second Hal Ashby film I've seen. The other one was uh, Being There, which I also recommended. Are a lot of his films? Do they always take this approach where it's like these really almost intense situations, but he makes them as wholesome as possible? Kind of. Not really. That vibe is often there, but not all of his movies are like that. Like Bound for Glory is another really good one. It's a straight up Woody Guthrie biopic. I don't know. There was something. It was something that was like, this film was like, almost like his style. The style of this film was almost like an evil twin to like Woody Allen style mm-hmm. from early on. But yeah, I don't know. I, I I really enjoyed it. I think it was like, I don't know who, uh, I forgot. Who's the guy who played Harold? Does, has he done Bud anything Cor- else? Uh, not a lot. Like, I think he's always had a career, but he's never gotten super famous. Maude, on the other hand. Ruth Gordon, amazing, just Academy amazing Award writer winner. and actor. Oh, she was an absolute treasure. Her energy is like she was an absolute firecracker that whole time. Just <laughs> and every scene where she's stealing a car and driving recklessly was always a highlight. Because I'm just like she she constantly gets away with stuff that she shouldn't. Because she's a sweet little old lady. Like there's there's one point where she drives a stolen car up a curve and the police are checking it out and then. <laughs> She acts like she doesn't know whose car it is, and then she steals another one just right from under them. And the supporting cast, like Harold's mom and the priest. and Ah, uh, yes. Oh, that was the cast of characters that were supporting really because he has his overbearing mother who's setting him up on dates. like Which he does not want. <laughs> yeah, well, weren't they also done on a computer? Like, it was very futuristic dating for that time period. Like, yes. And he would bring all these potential, like, girlfriends over and he would do something to alienate them to go away and then also wasn't uh was it his uncle who was in the military yes who was always like (laughs) there's always this kind of talk of him going in the military and then there's a scene where he's trying to like convince him to go and then he takes it too far like he usually does and then um who was it else also the scenes with his therapist Oh my god! Yeah. Oh god! Those are <laughs> those are wild. I was just just the way he acts. I was just like, oh, this was this movie was like peak seventies because it had all the alienation and all the social change and very dark. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I was it's over. It's like, but you know, I I do like the wholesomeness that contrasts like kind of the darker elements of this story and just to see them. It's like you know, it, it's like when you find a kindred spirit like that and it just kind of changes your world. Exactly. Despite the massive age difference. I think it was even, I don't know if it made the top 100, but it was certainly in the running for the AFI's top 100 romances. Oh, it should have been up there, considering some of the crap they've picked. I mean, excuse my language. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, it's not that bad what I said, but on this show it is. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, Harold and Maude, it's one of those weird films, and I haven't seen it in years, and I need to see it again. That much is true. Um it's one of those weird films where it's on paper. It actually seems pretty, pretty disturbed. But once you see it, it's just like the sweetest thing. It's just, it's hilarious. 
it's it's hilarious despite being so dark at times so dark at times including some of the therapy sessions um but i think it just knows how to get to the human element the weird stuff that kind of makes us these these creatures that we are and a lot of filmmakers have tried to do something similar and have like tremendously failed this is an instance where hal ashby and company succeed with identifying the weirdness of humanity without being creepy or twisted or anything it just works now i thought james would like it just based on his film taste but i also think it's the kind of movie you just should see like anyone should see it yeah even if you're a little bit weird yeah even even with the oddities and the darkness the film isn't like a dark film inherently it just has dark stuff in it but it's always tender which i think Mm -hmm. is what kind of makes it palatable for everyone that's a good way to describe it tender it's so weird that it's tender but it is i think it's just it's the kind of thing i like to say about the 70s it was like you know it was very it was very lawless in those days it's like you could literally get anything made and there wasn't such a disparity from like the gritty films and the 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 highly produced very commercially you know general audience films it was like i don't know there was just this common ground where everybody could be creative regardless of what they made and you know it 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 was a period of some of the best storytelling just like you didn't need to there wasn't a lot of fan service necessary to entice audiences and speaking of fan service and the enticing of audiences Let's use this as a, I hope, a decent segue for our um, collective pick, which I alluded to earlier, is Private Property by Leslie Stevens. This film um, barely was seen upon release, and when it was, it was heavily reviled by the likes of JFK and I think Jack Jackie as well. Um, and for a few reasons... It was actually considered lost because, you know, it was banned. It was outright dismissed. It was buried. It was, yeah, it was buried because of a lot of, like, the um, religious groups that were, like, uh, going against this film, particularly for its uh, sexual nature, let's say. Uh, and of but course, by today's standards, it is so tame. It oh, yeah. is, it is, but at the same time, it's quite a lot for its time as well. Um, yeah. I think most of all, like there is violence in it, but also it's about to bubble over for the entire movie, basically. Exactly. Um, so this film was uh, reintroduced to the world after being lost for decades by uh, Cinelicious Picks in 2016. We're now with a modern, fresh pair of eyes. People are liking it a little bit more. So... Are we a part of that crowd? Do we think private property is good or do we think it should be condemned and never to be seen? I don't think it's a genius movie. I don't think it deserves the hate it got. Yeah, I'm kind of in the similar boat where I think it's a great film in some respects, but at the same time when it comes to being a moral fable or uh you know a a depictment of uh you know what it's like to be a terrible person even at this time period even with something like psycho i think we've seen far better but 
I feel like as a film, you know, it's short, it's sweet, it's got some really nice photography, um, some really nice tension. It's got some good things going for it. The term I'd use to describe it is frank. It is frank about its intentions. That's also true. It, uh, and I can see why it would be very uncomfortable at the time, especially when, uh, you know, because not every film is psycho, and this was released the same year, 1960. Um, A lot of films were having to tiptoe around uh, what they were trying to say because of the uh, the final stages of the Hollywood Code, but the Hollywood Code was still there. Um, this is up front. This is like outright saying like, look at this person and oh my goodness, I'm going to try and uh, like, I don't know, like get into this household and uh, basically the, the people we're following are not good people. They're kind of thieves, kind of con artists. Um, they've got bad intentions. They're just bad people all around and they like to take advantage of situations. And part of it, it includes, unfortunately, and this is a little difficult to discuss, uh, the wife of another person whose house they are, are frequently surrounding. So, um, to your point, Frank, and to the point of those that were very against it when it first came out, it's not an easy film to discuss. Let's be honest. Yeah, I thought it was. Uh, I thought it was very entertaining. I think. I think this film has its place in retrospect because I think you know this is 1960, so we had things like Psycho and Peeping Tom, but those bit more nuanced. These are more like the everyman kind of villain. These kind of drifters who are just, you know, just getting by. And I, I think it does a great job at um, kind of highlighting the isolation of the incident. Yes. Because it's not like they're they're not in a, like, you know, in, in a city anywhere, like, you know, densely populated. This is just they're holding up in an abandoned house where they take interest in a lonely housewife. And it's kind of it, it also proves it's like you don't have to reinvent the wheel to just tell a decent story. No. Like this this film wasn't anything groundbreaking. But it still kind of was like, you know, it it, it does exactly what it needed to do. But you're right, it is very tame by today's standards. Yeah, I think the Kennedys were just easily frightened. Yeah, or or at least pretending to be. I mean, that was such a different time like the things that it's like, you know, when you look at uh cuz we talked about this before, it's like, you know, we talk like the pre haze code during the code and then after it's like you know even pre like code stuff by today's standards is is pretty much you know for all ages and you know no one's gonna be traumatized by watching it but for the time it's like yeah i don't i, I we become kind of desensitized and jaded as media consumers these days because it's like you know i don't know it's like you know it's it's almost like you have to do more in order to actually get people's attention these days we're also uh, children of the internet age. Um, unfortunately, it's a very unfortunate truth, but unfortunately, um, a lot of us are desensitized because we saw stuff that we probably shouldn't have when we were younger. And I'm not talking like, you know, mature adult stuff. I mean, like violent stuff. I mean, like uh, swearing, all sorts of stuff. Like we were kind of around the time when it was first becoming a, a real thing where you could find anything online. And so, yeah, stuff like this doesn't phase us because, quite honestly, we we had seen much worse by the time we were 10. Uh, sorry, Mom and Dad, uh, but it's true. Um, but um, and Honestly, a mainstream crime film now would have way worse. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. If you look at something like a film by like Winding Refn or Gaspar Noe, like those. But then again, in years time, people might be looking back and being like, wow, the cake cut is like really soft when it comes to this. Those are nothing like we have much more disturbing stuff now. But that's kind of how this goes. Like we have different thresholds, I think. I like your optimism that people will be listening to us in a couple of generations. Yeah. <laughs> you never know. I mean, it's like you can find anything online. We're online. So I'd like to think that maybe people will stumble upon us. You never know. Listen to us. Yes, please. And on that topic, where can our listeners listen to us some more? <laughs> well, we're on all your favorite podcast providers. And we are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram under the K-Cut. And I think we have some announcements to make. Yes, I'm running for... No, I'm kidding. No, we're, we're not doing that. Uh, the announcements that our dear Rachel is talking about over here is actually what I can't speak for all of us, but I feel like it's safe to presume is actually our favorite part of the episode where, you know, we've watched the picks that we've been given. We're ready to report to the front of the class, but we're actually a little bit more excited to find out what we're watching next and to see what happens when we give the film that we are uh, recommending to the, our fellow co-host. So that's what we're going to do. And we're going to get you listeners involved at home as well. So these are films where if you haven't seen them, you can watch with us for the month of January. Uh, it's going to be a whole new year, whole new you. Why don't you check out some films? And here are the four that you're going to be checking out. So who wants to first discover what they are going to be watching? Me. Okay. <laughs> oh, God. It had to be you, huh? Okay. Uh, you'll see why in a second. Sight and Sound just released its updated list. They do a list every 10 years of their top 100 films of all time. So for deck, I think the very first one was The Rules of the Game by Renoir. And then for decades, it was Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. Oh, they were so obsessed with, with Citizen Kane. Oh, it's a great film, but, you know, it's it's nice to, you know, do something else, you know. Um, which they did in 2012. They went with Hitchcock's uh, Vertigo. And as soon as that was announced, it's like, is this going to be the next Citizen Kane, is this going to be the reigning film for decades? No. Actually, that is now second, and Citizen Kane is third. James, are you prepared to see one of the biggest film commitments you're ever going to have to make? Sure, why not? The number one film that won is a very challenging but worthwhile feminist, avant-garde, postmodern masterpiece and I apologize, Rachel, and to all that I'm going to offend when I butcher the name of this film. It's uh, Jean Dielman, 23, K. Ducommerce, uh, 1080 Bruxelles, uh, otherwise known as Jean Dielman, by Chantal Ackerman, which was the t- the highest film on this list. What a bold take by Sight and Sound, by the way. Um, and all of those that uh, contributed to the poll. This it is was unexpected, th- wasn't it? No, it wasn't expected. I know it made the previous list of like 35 or something, but um, like this is brilliant. Like, I don't think it's my top film of all time, but I can easily support that it is somebody else's. Which, by the way, the uh, very first film was not Rules of the Game, it was Bicycle Thieves, so I was wrong. Um, nonetheless, this film, James, is three and a half hours long. It never leaves the confinements of the main character's home. And you're basically hypnotized 
into partaking in the daily habitual routines of this main character as she is confined by society, by film, by everything. It is a tough watch, but I don't think you'll ever see a film like it before or after. Alrighty. Just a warning. Again, it's three and a half hours. So take from that what you will. <laughs> wow. Um, okay. Who wants to, okay. Well, what am I going to get? Is mine also three and a half hours, Rachel? <laughs> no, but do you like Peter Sellers? Yeah. I'm a very big fan of uh, Dr. Strangelove. I feel like he was robbed of an Oscar for being there. I've seen quite a, few of his things dare i ask if you've picked something i've already seen um have you seen the mouse that roared i don't think i've ever even heard of that so the answer is no it's a comedy it's weird you'll like it and hey it's peter sellers so why not what's all peter sellers all the time in that film it's great amazing what's kind of like the general gist of it just for uh, listeners at home and myself just to so do you remember the marshall plan at the end of world war ii Oh, yes. Okay. Well, it plays into this, and there's a war, and there's a very tiny country where Peter Sellers is basically in charge of every government job, and you'll see what I mean. Okay, so it's like basically martial law. Not quite. Uh, just just watch it. Okay. Uh, I My curiosity has been piqued. Fantastic. Um, okay. James, what are you recommending to Rachel? Alrighty, so I decided to go with the Harmony Corinne film, Mr. Lonely. Harmony Corinne, everybody take a drink. <laughs> Alright, well you've mentioned this before, so I'm looking forward to it. Yes, it is a very unique film. It is about a Michael Jackson impersonator who one day meets a Marilyn Monroe impersonator, and she brings him to an island where she lives in a commune with other impersonators. I need to see this. It's really interesting. Oh, no, it's great. Uh, and this isn't a spoiler, but the Marilyn Monroe impersonator is married to a Charlie Chaplin impersonator. It's the pairing we all wished happened. And their daughter is a Shirley Temple impersonator. Okay, yep, you sold me. I- I'm watching this. <laughs> there you go. Yep, there's there's definitely unique. There's I think there's a Sammy Davis Jr. impersonator. There's a, uh, a young kid who impersonates a buckwheat from The Little Rascals. It's It's a very interesting film. It's It's not... I don't know. It's really hard to say. It's one of those ones that it doesn't get talked about within his filmography. It's it's one of those rare films where it's like it kind of sidesteps the entire filmography of being something like completely different, but very much him at the same time. Okay, well, I'm excited. Alrighty, so I guess we're under the collective pick. Yeah, and it's my turn, so buckle up. Uh-oh. Okay, so we will be visiting our patron saint, Rosalind Russell, in the comedic classic Anti-Mame, which I know Andres has never seen. Pretty sure James has never seen. I have somehow never gotten around to, and we're going to have a grand old time with our favorite aunt. See, I thought you were going to be recommending this to me as a personal pick for a very long time. Now I see why you haven't. Brilliant. Okay. Yes. So Andy Mame and Angela Lansbury, our other friend, was in the stage version. So I'd recommend checking out a clip or two of that. Uh, rest in peace. Um, still still too soon, Angela Lansbury. We, we've lost quite a few people this year, but that's a discussion for another day. Um, She's partying with the Queen. It's fine. That's one way to look at it. That is certainly one way to look at it. Um, anti-mame. So, wow, we've got uh, Peter Sellers' comedy. We've got a Technicolor uh, romp as well. Um Harmony Corinne and Gene Dealman by Chantelle Ackerman. I don't think you can get more varied than this. We always get a good mix. 
We do, we do. So those are the films that you're going to be watching at home, and we're going to be watching them as well. So whether you need to devote an entire day to a three and a half hour film, or just sneak in a nice quick comedy uh, just to lift your spirits, we've got you covered. So that was the K Cut. Join us next week for another episode, and join us at the first Tuesday of January to check in with us when it comes to these picks. We are now going into the L Cut. <laughs>